gentlemen to episode 24 of pounding the table this week was an absolute doozy with stocks like enron bear stearns Lehman brothers having absolutely incredible weeks i'm just kidding tony because this last week was an absolute whirlwind to say the least our prayers go out to melvin capital and citron we know the whole suits versus retailers things a little bit played out and I'm pounding the table. We are not going to beat this dead horse. Rather, we're going to spend more time talking about how do you actually revive that dead horse? And Tony, I know we're both future-oriented individuals, self-proclaimed problem solvers. This week, we want to focus on how not only to digest what's happening in the markets, but also let's discuss some actionable approaches to ensure that not only are you trading another day, but of course, setting yourself up for that healthy, balanced portfolio moving forward. We got a ton of questions from all of you guys. We realize that this is truly a historical moment. So we're going to crack open Tony's brain just a little bit, sprinkle some genius from your boy, and of course, try to provide some ideas and thoughts on how do you navigate this market during the uncertain times. What's going on, everyone? I'm happy to be back this week. I've actually been geeking about doing this episode because I think if you had to listen to only one episode of Pounding the Table ever... It's probably this one because I'm just going to deep dive into how I do what I do. I was just feeling like I wanted to just spread the spread the knowledge, share the love a little bit and just talk about it because I'm I'm actually geeking right now feeling like Eminem in the booth right before an eight mile battle like I'm ready to go and drop the bangers but for those of you who are new, Pine the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and Anthony Ohian talking about the stock market, the art of options trading, which we actually continue to start doing sometimes now. And each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted. Quick disclaimer here, everybody knows the rules. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitations. And with that being said, Avi, let's kick it off. All right, Tony, we're going to need you to go into full Moses mode. Take us to the promised land right now because we got waves coming from both sides. We got the retailers, we got the suits, and we just need you to take us to the other side. Yeah, Avi, I mean, this is one of the most historic moments in history. I mean, you're going to be hearing about this for years and years, I think, and it's going to be one of those things like everyone talks about the Volkswagen squeeze like back in like 08, and like they're going to be talking about this in the future too because it was pretty much like, it's a ridiculous setup, right? But We don't want to talk about it too much. Like you can Google it. It's nuts. I mean, it happened and we think it's probably going to keep happening to some degree, maybe not as much as it, but it it could keep happening in other names for sure. But basically, Avi, the, the TLDR for all this is we're in the game now. It's time to play some ball, boys. So it's pretty crazy. You see this like Wall Street bets community wasn't too huge, wasn't too talked about. Started at 2.7 million like a week and a half ago. And now it's over 6 million. And I, I, it looks like it's going to go to 10 million users in no time. I mean, this thing's just exploding because of all the hype. And it's just going to continue to grow as these like celebrities and other bigger people just start jumping into stocks and being like, oh, load AMC, like load all these different names. 
And so now it's like we're in a situation where the retailers do have control. Like we have the means to fight back. It's essentially like the largest hedge fund when they're running together. I mean, it, it causes waves. So, I mean, I wasn't alive in 2008, really like trading in the markets at all. Uh, I was like four years old at the time, as Avi likes to say. So, I mean, even since then, I've really only seen up in the markets right before March. And the, a lot of these guys got in during the March crash. So they've also only seen up. So if I were to say, oh, is the market really, really in a bad place right now? From a liquidity standpoint, you're not going to, I don't think Robinhood's going to blow up. I think that they're going to cover that because that's just going to upend the financial industry, I think. And you've already seen like all the brokers are taking charge of it. So the only good thing that came out of this is a lot of people who were doing dumb things got squeezed like Citron. And I'm a fan of that because you bet against the market doing well and you bet against good companies just for your own manipulation, you deserve to get squeezed. The truth is, though, we are in charge as much as they are now. So it's definitely time to eat. Yeah, the irony of that, Citron getting squeezed into lemonade. So I know a lot of uh, these pounders that we got out here are getting FOMO, myself included. I had some AMC calls that I definitely sold a little bit early. I made 150%. I think I would do that trade nine times out of 10. You can't get FOMO, right? So you've taught me that. I have the luxury of talking to you day in and day out. But for oh. many of the pounders that are starting to get a lot of this FOMO, they see GameStop going to record highs through the roof. Like this is actually insane, like you're talking about. So how do you, you know, what, what kind of advice, I guess, would you have for some of the pounders out there that are getting this FOMO, getting that itch? Yeah, don't get FOMO. If you have a plan, you have a long-term strategy, you have a goal, a vision, like a decision of where you want to be in the markets and how you want to be trading it, then you're not going to get that FOMO. Like I saw, yeah, GameStop went absurd. AMC went absurd. Like everything is fine for me because those aren't the names I want to buy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm here setting up the next three to six months of the market because people are selling off my babies like Fiverr and Eddie Taz and CRISPR. So like, that's kind of what I'm looking at now. Like, why are people buying this garbage that, you know, yeah, it can keep squeezing because of the shorts and this and that, but eventually mean regression, things will normal out again. And I think that these names are just going to get a huge pop. So I'm not getting FOMO because those aren't companies I want to buy for a year plus. Like, yeah, you can YOLO some AMC calls or whatever you want to do, but your main goal should be keeping with that strategy that you set up at the beginning of the year. Just because the trash is running doesn't mean you need to get dirty. Um, I'm happy to just stay clean in my great names and just know that when those blossom back up again, when people realize that this is dumb, then those names will explode even harder because Wall Street bets isn't going to be able to keep just doing those five to 10 really high shorted names. They're going to go down the list of the ones with the short interest. And there's a lot of babies in there that I love. Like those are the Nanoxes, those are like the Jumias, the OTRKs. Those are the ones that are going to explode. So realize that one man's trash is another man's treasure, but something that's great is always valuable. Something that's always like an amazing company is not going to stop being an amazing company. So I'm keeping my eyes on the prize, right? Like I'm looking to shoot the basket. I'm going for the three-pointer. I don't want these like easy layups that I'm going to get just crushed on some point. Tony's out here like Ray Allen right now, dropping trays left and right. You mentioned Robinhood, right? They're doing what everyone's been calling like their own manipulation. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are using Robinhood. They could only sell, right? And now I think they just reintroduced where you can start buying limited amount of shares. Is that a, a real market? If you can only sell, uh, won't these names just inherently go down eventually? I mean, yeah, that's what you that's what you saw happen. I think it was Thursday, right? And the SPX ripped up 75 because they are now running like inverse to each other. So Wall Street bet meme stocks versus the S&P 500 is the only indicator you need to watch right now. Like Friday, you saw GME tick down a bunch and SPX start ripping from the bottom there. I mean, that's what you're going to keep seeing in terms of where the money's flowing. It's coming in and out of good names, like into the trash, into better names. 
and then they keep rotating it back and forth. But because they did that only sell thing, but you know, the thing could have just kept on squeezing, right? Like you had such a unique setup and nothing else is shorted over hundred percent right now. I don't think, um, but either way, I mean, the thing with Robinhood only letting you sell is what caused GameStop and AMC and all those names to get destroyed on Thursday. And then when they let it come back a little bit Friday, everything changed again and went back up and, and then you saw the market dive again. So that's just a testament to the way this is kind of working out. You'll see that continue down the road. I mean, if you can only sell, it will go down, right? Like, mm-hmm. And that's where the guys who got screwed are, are already positioning and making money on the way down. You know, That's a unique situation for them to not get blown up and not cause a liquidity trap in the market like Lehman Brothers. So yeah, I mean, that's what you're seeing. But I think if you're a Robinhood investor, the way that I think about it is a lot of these kids don't want to set up a Schwab or an E-Trade. So they're just going to keep YOLOing on Robinhood. It is what it is. And like the market will figure out the liquidity over time. I, like everything's backstopped. Just understand that you're not going to have anything upend the financial industry right now. It's everything's backstopped. So mm. I'm I'm sticking with that thesis. Like you're not. It's not blowing up. Robinhood's not blowing up. And if it does, like I'm I, like it's a 18 sigma event. What happens if all these Robinhooders do actually go into TD and Fidelity? You know, E trades of the world. What happens then? Right on Fintway, you can see millions of people talking about they're going to shift. I don't know if they actually will, but let's say that they do. And then their you know, money is essentially held in escrow for five days where they can't make any moves, buy or sell. How does that impact the market? Right. Yeah. I mean, like my mom, for example, uses Robinhood just to YOLO options sometimes. And like she crushes it. It's pretty hilarious. And it's pretty amazing, too. Um, but she's transferring out and it costs her 75 bucks to do that. And that's five days. All of her assets just go to another account. But also bad is that you can only transfer out 50K a day from Robinhood. So if you're a big player in the markets, which is what would move the markets, right? If a ton of big players sold everything, waited five days in escrow, went to something else. First of all, they'd be buyers in five or 10 days. So this isn't, I don't think it's going to last that long. Those people are not inherent sellers they're selling for a cause and that cause is five to ten days so that's what i see happening i think yeah you could have like drop and like they're taking precautions for these liquidity measures so it's like it's not that big of a worry to me i think i think people are overreacting a little bit about it and that's okay because it's like one of those things you've never seen before but the truth is like everything is going to be fine i i think so yeah we got a, a question that i think would be a good insertion here from the fin twit water boy i actually love that name so They're asking, how does that work? Can this world exist with these GameStop-like moves? So, Tony, you're kind of like the Rob Schneider of the markets now. So you're screaming to our pounders, you can do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate revolutionary zig when they zag. I mean, it's just like, if you think about the singularity, this is when... AI and humans are evenly matched. What I do know is every time this happens, it becomes less and less severe on the next time because these guys like GME was 136 short. Now it's like 57. And a lot of these guys are deleveraging. Like they are taking off that risk because they're going to get blown up and they know that. So I think the risk to be short is a bigger risk than it's ever been because you know that that is the way, you know, people are going to go after those names. But what happens when you have like very few short positions, right? I get like other funds have to be like market neutral and la la crap. But what happens when those guys are like, all right, like it's not as fun to rip the names that are like, you know, shorts. And then these guys develop as traders, right? Like people are going to be developing. There's going to be like some of the most insane hedge fund managers coming out of Wall Street bets. Like, I don't care what you say. There's going to be some beasts coming out of there. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like, you know, literally I could have been in Wall Street bets like five years ago if it was now. Um, So that's the thing. Like I could see that happening. But what I'm saying is, that is not going to be 
the standard to go after those names. They're going to be looking at the other names that are better and better. And I think that they're going to still move like funds and they're going to go to move stocks up, right? But it might start being the good names and like the growth names, like they could get very fintwitty. So I'm thinking like, I'm like extrapolating on Wall Street bets mentality, but I know that like humanity's goal is succession progression. Like that's, you know, the next move and they're going to keep, they're going to keep growing as traders and the market's going to grow. So I think this is actually going to end up being a net positive for the markets. Yeah, so we got this brand new situation. It's a crazier market that I think I've ever seen in my lifetime before. You know, we've talked to our pounders about the trading 101s, the basics of not only how to stay alive, but how are you going to thrive in any market? So you had 91% month in January, which is insane to say out loud, of course. But everyone's obviously asking, you know, Tony, how do you do it? How do you figure out how to handle this with not much risk? You know, the market dropped 5% last week. And meanwhile, you're still up here. So how do you move from Tony Tops one day to now screaming a bull market? And how crucial is it to make sure that you can time those big market moves either up or down? Yeah, I think that's the single most important thing, right? You want to be in the position to play a good environment versus fighting. Like it's like fighting a tropical storm. You'd rather just be chilling in the beach, you know, in the sunshine because you know where, where the market's going. You have to like honestly understand the different factors affecting the market at this time and space. Like it's all that matters in the day to day, because even if you have the best companies and you like love these companies, you're holding them long-term. If the market's crashing 150 points, I doubt most will be green. Like most of them will be red. And if not like slightly red, very red. So if you can time when to be more risky and when to be less risky and on the way to becoming in that risky position, you're battening down the hatches, which I'll go into a little later, that is exactly what you have to do. You want to be able to be in a position where if you can time the markets, you can successfully kill it. And if you don't time the markets, you're still really, really fine and you trade another day. All right. So let's just build out a portfolio. Portfolio 101, let's call it. So let's just say you had $10,000 green cash. Show us how you grow your bonsai tree that you were talking to me about the other night. You know, how do you make sure that you start a position, zig when others are zagging, yet still make money when everyone else is just kind of zagging together as we recently saw? The first thing in building any portfolio, and we'll run with this like $10,000 green cash thing. I like it because it's like a lot of people are just new to the markets and they're just seeing everyone YOLO all this stuff. And that's not how you ride. That's not how you grow over time and make a nice portfolio that's actually useful in your life versus just like beer money. That's the difference. So the first thing I do before even thinking about clicking a button is I ask myself questions. I say, okay, what is this portfolio for? What is my actual risk tolerance? What is my goal? What is what I'm comfortable with both up and down? How much time am I going to allocate to it? And how much am I going to care if I lose this money? Like that, you have to ask yourself all those questions because you shouldn't click a button before you do that. Because if the money is very, very important to you, like you need that money, it's a savings kind of portfolio, then you do a lot more in a less risky basket versus I'm 21, you know, and this is a YOLO account and I want to make it grow, but I don't want to lose it all. Like there's very different parts in your life. So where you are in life and what you're thinking about for that specific amount of capital you're putting in is the first thing to ask yourself and ask yourself all those questions. Like don't lie to yourself. Shout out to smarter trader because he's the one who gave me those cardinal rules. And if you follow those cardinal rules, you'll always start off in a really good spot, just mentally, at least starting before you even buy anything. Um, But after you start asking yourself those like, you know, really important questions that impact your life, I do this first. I break up the portfolio based on, you know, the rules I have, the goals I have, everything I was just saying. Uh, in this market, though, I really like the SPAC and chill market. You know, we're up a ton. 
uh, on the market. The S&P is up 400 points over 3,400. I like to be in a place where if I do get a correction, I know it'll like snap back because rates aren't changing until 2024. So I want to be ready to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, but just in general here, there's going to be ups and downs anytime, right? So let's say you just inject money the first day. Like you'd be lucky if you catch your bottom, but you could just, you know, think about on average, you're probably just buying in an average spot most of the time. So the way that I do it is I break it up into baskets and I build a portfolio over time. And literally based on what kind of risk you have and what kind of goals and decisions you want to make for this portfolio, then you know it's allocating just based on your own personal choices. And that's the cool part about it because investment doesn't have to be you know one side of the coin or the other. It can be a spectrum. And that's what it should be. It should be a gradient based on who you are. So the goal that I have in my mind for my portfolio is to run exponentially. And when the market corrects, stay as high as possible. It's okay to lose a little bit of money. It's annoying when you lose a lot of money because then you have to really claw back. And the more you lose, the harder it is to grow just on a math basis. But when the market does correct and you're in a really good spot and you are able to maneuver that, you'll understand that the compounding factor of your portfolio is just exponentially better. Because you know if you have a dollar and it only decreases a little bit, but the market's down 10 or 15%, your dollar is worth exponentially more if you click anything to the upside, and especially if you lever at all. But I do sell myself up in stages. So there's always different plates at the table. You know, you don't just have one entree. You've got some sides, you got the drink, dessert, everything, appetizers. So I think of my portfolio kind of like that. And especially in this market, the different baskets allow you the flexibility to zigzag, zigzag, whatever you want. You can play the right way because you have baskets to grow from and pick from to be able to do different plays that are best suited for that time in the market. Uh, and by the way, that Twitter post that I made, Avi, uh, the one that I asked the poll, that was definitely a test, right? The answer is not like really new names to pound here. It's what are the best pounds that I know I know how to trade because I've been trading them for six to 12 months. And how do I capitalize on them being down 10, 20, 30%? Yeah, I'm still thinking about when you said SPAC and chill. I got my AMC popcorn. I'm kicking back. We're having a good time. Now, I think what you're saying is is so critical, right? Like every single person is in their own unique position. My friends always ask me all the time, should I sell this? Should I buy this? First and foremost, I say, I'm not a financial advisor, so I can't answer that. But in reality, when you're thinking about this, every single person comes from a different background. But let's switch gears just a little bit to a segment I'm calling the mountain base. The bigger the base, the taller the peak. So you're kind of now turning into the Sun Tzu of training. When you were talking in the pre-show, it kind of sounded like Kevin Garnett before game seven of the Timberwolves versus the Lakers. I don't know if you guys remember it. Amazing YouTube clip where he goes, we're loading up the clips, the pumps, the Uzis, grenades. So Tony, how do you prepare, right? Like, how do you think about when do you go all cash? You know, when do you cut those losses of some of those losers? Yeah, so this is one of those situations where you just have to really think about one thing the war is won before you even step onto the battlefield, right? So if you jump in not knowing what your plan is, which is why I made sure I emphasize that as the single first step you do before you even click buy button on anything is figure out the game you want to play. What is your strategy, right? And once you know that and you know you don't lie to yourself, you answer all your questions, then you know you get prepared. Then you start making the decisions that you want to make to get that portfolio in the place that you want to make it. But I make sure, and this is the basket one, right? This is the SPAC and chill kind of thing I'm talking about. I make sure I build a base that's large enough from the start that if there's any avalanche on this mountain, which is my portfolio, it will keep my base high enough that I'll never be scared and I can get back to the top easier. So I keep half or a little more of my portfolio heavily weighted in SPAC units at net asset value. So pretty much like at the trust's value of those shares plus the warrant premium or whatever. 
And so it's probably just like 30 or 40% in that, a ton of it's CMLF. Um, but 15, 20% or so I keep in those cheap warrants and also mispriced arbitrage warrants uh, that I accumulate on dips, right? So the strategy with that for me is I buy them when the market corrects. Like I've just recently bought a lot of them. And those are the reasons why I'm going to be preparing for like a higher move in the portfolio. Because if you get them closer to net asset value, you've got much less risk to go on the downside. And then when the market does correct a ton, you have things that you've had held that hold that cash value. So you can sell those and then you can position yourself to make money on the move up with capital that hasn't been affected. So that is the reason I love the strategy. But included in that, I also accumulate names at great prices, right? So I do 10 or 15, maybe 20% if I do a little bit of margin, which I rarely do anymore, in stocks at great prices that I've sold off. Like such a, you know, examples like Fiverr, CRISPR, Editas, stuff like that, Gravy. So those are the names that are something like that that I add on big market dips that are at great prices at their volume shelves at good supports um, that I think are going to be great companies for the next five or 10 years. So that just continues to build the base larger because equities are obviously much safer than options or than trading in and out swing trading. If you have a good long-term thesis and you get in at good prices that are attracted to where it's previously been. So basically there, I've got two thirds of my account stuck in something that's got relatively low risk that I have hyper conviction on. So all that combined builds a larger base because equities obviously hold support better and they hold their, their value in dollars better than like an option. Or if I were trading and I was on the wrong side of a trade. And, you know, obviously refer to the Bible is what I do all the time. I literally have a watch list with the Bible that I made. And whenever things are at super attractive prices, I add that to the core positions in my portfolio. And with that, two thirds of my portfolio are relatively safe at any given time because those are never chased. Those are strategically planned long term investments that I have the utmost conviction and will hold their value and appreciate in value significantly. And then, of course, I want to reiterate this again, like it's important to have this at any time, right? This is the first layer of a portfolio, in my opinion, is making sure you don't have too much risk so you can always trade another day. And then this is the best part about it is when the market dives, especially like, you know, even the last week, these SPAC units hold incredibly well provided a great almost one-to-one of what you put in cash storage situation, where then I trim some and I add to cheaper warrants of those names just because those are better priced relatively at the time, or in other sold-off names. And then I can use that for upside leverage plays, which we'll go into in the section below. And as the market rips, I just accumulate more and more of this core every day with the profits. So once the market's moving in my direction, I add to the base. I'm literally building the bigger sandcastle. So when the next time we drop, I'm higher at the base than I was the last time. And if you do that over time, your base gets bigger and bigger and pretty much like, you know, you're eventually going to be in the moon. Tony, you're giving people a little bit of a preview into your thesis pick. I don't know if anyone caught that. We'll get into it in just a bit. Uh, But you did mention leverage, right? You also talked about leaps, calls, some of these options plays. So you have all of these ingredients. So let's blend this up. How does one create the tastiest of juices? Yeah, I mean, I've, ran the gambit of every strategy. I've done penny stocks to options, weeklies, monthlies, leaps, spreads, everything I can think of. And I realized that I, pretty much with anything in the universe in life, it's all about, you know, it's the middle, it's the centrist. So it's a good combination of everything that works in a right way for you is my favorite way to have a portfolio set up. But of course, I just want to reiterate this again, because this is the crucial, crucial part. Like this is the most important part of this entire thing. Have the base. You know, if the market gets whacked 10, 20%, have the base. Because if you don't, do you know how hard it is to get up 
back to where you were if you're down 50, 60%. I do. It's impossibly harder than it was at the start. So don't let yourself get in that position. People ask, when do I go all cash? People ask, when do I cut my losses? Well, this is set up so you know exactly what your losses will be. This is set up to know what you're uh, expecting to lose and what you're okay with losing and what you stand to make, right? You want to have this like percentage, it's all percents, right? People get tripped up by getting bigger and bigger or getting smaller in their portfolio. It's about where you are at that specific given point in time and doing the best CAGR, the best growth from right there, that's second no matter where if you're up or down or whatever that is the spot you're trading from and people are like i'm up i'm down or whatever misconception you are where you are i love that we got two questions uh one from john lucy and one from adby not the first one from john lucy says gentlemen so thank you for the kind uh introduction there i just voted for options and leaps your bible which was excellent by the way shout out if you guys have not read that please do so the Bible shows some scary looking math symbols in the background of your front page. Are you guys both math geniuses? How good does one have to be at math to be a great investor? Options, when used wisely, seem so crucial. So the key here, I guess, is when to decide when to use them and how. So Tony, I think this question was probably geared for me being a math wizard in advanced math in seventh or eighth grade. Gershman's <laughs> asked. <laughs> now, this yeah, question's probably for you. You are you are the math wizard. So why don't you take this one? Yeah, I mean, I definitely am pretty good at math. But the thing is, you don't have to be incredible at math to do well at options. I think people have this misconception that the Greeks and Delta, Gamma, whatever, everything is like super, super important. It's important on the grand scheme of things sometimes to understand things like like Gamma and Vamma. Like there's there's things that you should definitely understand just to help you in the market. But like from option to option, you know, it's not as crucial. I definitely don't look at any Greeks for weekly options or monthly or leaps. I just know the prices. I know that's a good trade or not. That's That's where you want to get. But it's not through. I've never ever looked at any of that IV, any, any, any of it. I just know the price of the option because I've been doing it for so long and I never did the Greeks ever for like six years. So I think that you don't have to be incredible at math to be able to be good at options. Avi is good at options. Is that a uh, backhanded compliment saying? I don't no, no, I was just, I was just, three? Come on. <laughs> I was just being nice, Avi. I was giving you a compliment on air. You deserve it. You've been crushing. You know what? I'll take everything I can get. All right, we got another question here from Abdi Not uh, asking a lot of peeps, and for our older listeners, peeps stands for people, uh, unless they're <laughs> talking about those Easter egg duck candies. But let's assume people here, right? They're asking for all of these new names and talking about getting into leaps, like you were saying previously you know, for certain names, how do you go about picking those names? Yeah, Avi, I mean, this is the second layer of the cake, if I were to say that, right? So this is where you start to add on the exposure for me. This is what I start doing now. This is the second basket. This is after you build the base, after you're in a good spot to move ahead, right? To start making the gains and know that you've got a lot of capital protected. Then you start looking to add the names that will give you that more upside, right? Like less money in, more money out kind of thing. If that's the kind of trader you are. Right. If you're a less risky investor, then you stop at the first basket and you just make your entire portfolio a basket, you know, even to whatever that proportionality is. But the truth is, everything is all based on timing here for anything that you're buying in a stock. I think the most important thing is don't ride the FOMO. Right. So actually, it's funny because I've been like I got a day trade call recently because I was trading too much cash around and I learned that I just like let it stay on for a little bit. And I watched things that I was trying to chase come down. And I just, it forced me for like, I forced myself for two or three weeks to be in a position to move less cash around. 
because when you're doing things too fast, sometimes you make mistakes and you make a lot more than you think. And I was able to see that all these names that I would have, you know, FOMO bought that were moving higher were coming right back down to like volume support or like good levels to add, right? So that's the time that I add stocks that are in the core. And that's the time when I look for great options and leap strategies that will explode the portfolio if they act properly. And of course, this is really what I do. This is why I wasn't yellowing AMC or GameStop because I only invest in names that I would hold for years. And the same with trading. That way I never get scared. I never feel the tilt. You never have a bad hand in poker if you've got good cards. It's all about how you play them, right? You lose any game or any market if you draw a joker card regardless because you're being a clown in the first place and picking a shit company. So after knowing it's a company I want to put my money in for the more than six to 12 months, I go and look at what's moving in the market. Are the big tech stocks exploding? Are industrials ripping the Dow? Or small caps ripping face right now? Or now... Are the shorted names, Wall Street Bets hedge fund ripping and dropping ESPX as funds liquidate and margin requirements tighten up? So those are the four things I look at, right? See what is moving. So what am I going to be moving into? You know, what's been moving down that's ready to start moving up? So of course, timing is everything. And the biggest thing I learned in that day trade call that I kept on purposefully just to teach myself a lesson is that mean reversion is a thing in the markets. You know, at different levels, of course, but things revert to means. And I love that nature about math um, and the universe, in fact. So I like to trim names as they explode, right? I want to be in a comfortable size at any time, right? So if I buy something at a good level, you know, for the core, like EH, for example, you know, I'll give you an example. I bought that at eight and it ripped to 100. So I took off a third at 96 and I kept my floor higher because I paid for the total investment in EH like four times over. And since I did that, I'm not going to get blown up with EH. It could go to zero and I still made money. That is the way to think about it as you progress and build the mountain base. And strategies like this is the way that you do that and get in the position to even build the base by being profitable. And then on the other hand, you've got things like Fiverr, right? So that's down 90 for really no reason besides people are taking off those names and loading into those Wall Street bets rippers. And so I think what a gift here, right? Like that's an example of like an interesting leap strategy, right? So they have earnings on February, I don't know, February 20th or something. But the February monthly calls are actually like pretty decently priced. And I've seen five rip 90, uh, 100 points before. So that to me is a good leap strategy. So I think that's interesting because it has the earnings premium that'll hold up and keep the premium, even if I'm wrong, right? Like if it dips 10, 20 points, those calls are going to go from like nine to seven, not nine to zero, so that's why these are in the second basket, right? And if I was wanting to buy a stock that's smaller priced, then I would get into some like in the money leaps just because I like to do that with like- So John, let me just cut you off real quick because we got a question here from not Jerome Powell. Uh, they are saying, I think it's awesome to hear not only a few names, but maybe some of the top names that people have left, right? So the ones that people got FOMO, they went into those heavily shorted stocks, but could you hit on a few of those value names? So they actually brought up Fiverr, which you just discussed, but- also added in edit, CRISPR, even some of the ARC names, right? So if you could break down how you put your money, where you're going to put that, why, give them a few examples you know, of any positions that fit into that bracket. Yeah, absolutely. So going into this second basket, and I love that you mentioned Fiverr, edit, CRISPR. I mean, our founders are getting so damn smart. It's, it's incredible. Um, but so in this second bracket of, I guess, what you would call riskier Right. So this isn't the risk risk bracket yet. This is the riskier kind of bracket. So I always start the bracket with in the money leaps on some names that I really think are really good right now, such as like Nanox is hard to play week to week and it's you know hard to hedge. So it's really annoying to get stuck with it. Same with Jumia. You know, there's a lot of premium in those names. 
So I go in the money, right? You know, when things are flying high, I like to buy it in the money low. And so that's kind of what I think is interesting about that base because, you know, if you do a one-to-one strategy, you're going to hold yourself up pretty well in that way. So I do 10 to 15% in that. So those are long-term things that I want to hold for a while. And I don't want to use equity to buy them because it's not the most advantageous situation for that particular stock. So whatever fits into that bracket will go into that bracket as I'm trading it through those in the monies. And then of course, like to add to the name, like Fiverr, Edit, Crisper, Fiverr, I do own some of it like equity, but it's also hard to own a lot of Fiverr because it's once again, hard to hedge and it's very volatile. Um, But, you know, things like this, I can use in two different ways. I can add things that are great supports like Fiverr, Edit, Crisper to the core through stock, which I might do at some points, or I could play them and think that they're going to have a very explosive move. And then with those gains, add to the core in different ways, because, you know, the opportunity cost of capital, if those options go five, 10, 20 times, and I'm only playing a few upside leaps on there, uh, then, you know, that's going to be a ton of money to add to the core and build a bigger mountain base versus if I bought equity in that. So, you know, the best setups, I like to use those for the risk reward situation. All right, Tony, you were a fire hose of information there. So before we go into the next segment, if you could just quickly summarize everything that you just mentioned in terms of some of the in the monies just recently. I know you wanted to also talk about out of the money and then summarize the rest of it for us too. Right. So, I mean, the most important part of this is to realize like this is the part of the account that you're going to be having to be comfortable losing different amounts of. So some of it's going to be less than others and some of it's going to be more than others. But this is the part where, you know, if the market were to crash, this is the risk that you take on versus Uh, the other part of the portfolio that you're not really taking much risk on. And so, of course, I was just mentioning those in the money, so 10 to 15%. And of course, we have the uh, two-third base we've already built of a very, very nice, like, you know, long-term driven portfolio that can hold up very well in a market correction. But then let's add a little bit of juice, which is my favorite part. That's the bread and butter for me, is conviction plays at the right time with a little bit of leverage. So I know everyone's like, you know, he must use a lot of margin. I don't use a dollar of margin. I use my leverage with cash I have strategically and in a great manageable way to make sure that I don't get blown up, right? You can blow up on margin. I don't want to ever be in a position to blow up. So then I put three to seven, maybe 8% if it's a really high conviction between a few out the money leaps and then weekly options or the next weeks, you know, something shorter that doesn't have that earnings premium. And the out of the money leaps have earnings premium always in there. I want to make sure I keep those at a good level, but the weekly options are more like, I think that's going to rip right now. I think that's going to rip right here. So I do, you know, one, two, three, 4% max. Like, I mean, and and that includes like all the names that I'm doing this in just to make sure that if I get a haircut, it's a small haircut, right? I'm just getting a trim. I'm not getting my skull bashed. It's like that for me is my favorite part because you're totaling what you're comfortable losing, right? So if you choose like five to 6% in out the money leaps and one to 2% in options, like you've got 8% or so in like short-term risk, right? You don't need 10 plays. You don't need 10 plays with 3% option in each. That's absurd. I don't, I would not recommend that. But you do need two to four good plays for the upside, especially when the markets are at attractive levels. In my like, that's what I like to do. I think that you wanna be able to target the upside while protecting your downside, which we will get, you know, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, I think you just mentioned a good point. I, I had my options. I had to scroll down twice at one point, and you said, <laughs> make sure you keep it at least on one page, right? And so, I, especially with some of these shorter term options. All right, Tony, we've been introducing hedges quite a bit more. I and mean, I think, you know, with everything that's going on in the market, it's important to always be able to be aware of different areas that you can hedge to minimize those losses and really manage your portfolio, right? And so, 
I think the biggest thing is, you know, as with any stock you pick, your hedge is a similar matter where it's always your personal decision. It's going to be based on how well the bonsai tree is trimmed, as you always say, right? So it feels like this constant gradient, really kind of in relation to how much you're up, you know, how much do you want to risk, how well you're really seeing the market at the time, how strong is the market now overall in each sector, and, you know, really what is your end goal here? So thinking about how you look at this, share a little bit with the Pound Nation. Right. Think of it as one portfolio you're managing. It's not just like one trade. It's not just like one lotto or one hedge. It's like, what is your bonsai tree doing? Is this thing growing leaves up the yin yang and you have to cut it and trim it and make it back to its perfect desired shape? That's what I try to do every day a little bit. So I'm never too caught off guard when things don't go my way. So this last section is just as important as the section before. And I actually think it's as important, if not more than it. So the important thing for me here is to make sure I have 10% between caches and hedges. And if the market's looking really, really, really bad, the hedges will obviously go up, right? So I hedge based on how I feel the market at the time. So I either hedge with SPX puts, but if I do have one of those big upside positions, I will hedge those individually because I only have two to four of them at any given time. And that's where my risk is really concentrated in. So I'm going to protect those lightly, right? Those are meant to go up. So I don't want to spend too, too much on the hedge, right? Those are the pawns that it's okay if they take the pawns as long as the king and the castle are okay. And that's all about the king and the castle. So I either hedge with those SPX puts or those individual names. And I'm happy to lose those hedges if the market explodes, right? Because I really only do like 1% to 2%, maybe 3% of the market's really, really like not great for like a monthly hedge. And like 1% 1 or so a week in SPX just because... The times that it works, it's the absolute best thing in the world to have. The times when it doesn't work, it's because the rest of your portfolio is ripper magooing and you're going to not care about losing that. So, like, I mean, that was my biggest loss last year, and I'm damn happy about it because I want it to be my biggest loss this year. It's not right now. I've been crushing the SPX puts, but I want it to become the biggest loss because that means the market's just nonstop rippering. It's also nice that the hedges are a lot smaller than the big positions you allocate, even smaller sometimes than the risk. You don't need a lot to keep your portfolio up. Like it's okay to let it drift down a little bit, not crazy, right? But in a controlled way where you have the control to put the gas on or to put the brake on. So Mm. it's an important part. And the great part about the portfolio, if you went the right direction and right chronological steps, is that two thirds of your portfolio essentially is either at floor or great support that you have almost a hedge built into the entire portfolio by having such sturdy assets in that two thirds. So that is what I'm doing because if the market implodes, I don't want to get caught with my pants down. It doesn't make any sense. We've had all great years in 2020. I'm absolutely bullish, but you never know. There's things that are happening that have never happened before, and I like to get prepared. I don't like to get scared. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. You were saying king of the castle, king of the castle, king of the castle. I feel like we all kind of felt like the king of the castle, but I, I do think what you just said is so important for people to realize is, how good the markets have really been, you know, the past several months, right? And so like you, you know, I'm not saying that it's time to get bearish by any means, but let's just be honest. It's such a, a misconception when people say stonks, you know, only go up, you know, people only make money in the markets. That's not, that's not the reality for many people. And so like, how do you, like, what do you strategize, you know, when there is big downturns? I know you just talked about some of the ways you do hedge, but, you know, just more of a mentality. Right. Of course. In the same way that I use, you know, I use news, I use like volume profiles, I use my anchored VWAP and I use like, you know, technicals. Now it's kind of interesting that like 
the rudimentary technicals that the Wall Street bet crowd is starting to learn are actually becoming used in the market. Like that's exactly where SPY bounced off, exactly where GME went down. Like these kids are using like 101 charts and it's pretty funny. I think it's getting coded into the algos, but that makes the market a little bit easier for identifying entries. So the same reason as like, I wait for things to come back to the mean reversion. I wait for things to be at an attractive price that I want to jump on it on to add it to the core. I honestly wait for the markets to be so, so good that people think it's going to the moon and I strike with a hedge because euphoria is the killer and you get it in your gut. You start taking photos on your phone of how much you made and sending it to your friends. And you're like, oh, damn, I can go buy a $100 Uber Eats lunch. And you're doing all these things. And I see people do it all the time, right? Buy puts. That's what I do at that situation, right? Because you never like want to be riding the wave of euphoria for too long. Like, I think there's an extreme amount of uh, fear right now versus the greed, right? There's like a 38 on the 100 uh, scale that's going on right now. So like the greed was at 96, 98, 99. It's at like 38 now. So people are not as insanely bullish as they were, which means a lot of good names got sold off in the midst of all was happening. Um, And so those are the ones that I'm looking for on the upside. But when those upside ones start to work, I have my hedge. So my hedge is always the most important part of the portfolio because, you know, we only think like, yeah, we're going to exactly like you were saying, the market's going to go up, we're going to make money. But when things start to turn, you want to be overprepared for that because that's not the fun days. Those are not the days that you're sending photos and taking photos and like <laughs> having a blast and drinking Celsius and playing. Unless you're on Wall Street bets. Right, right. Some, uh, exactly. Yeet, yeet, uh, plays there. Yeah, you're buying else. Lambos and flying out in PJs. But exactly, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, you want to make sure that if you're headed towards that direction, you don't screw it up. Uh, and so the 10% cash uh, and then using part of that cash for obviously trades, other different risks that I want to take or more protection that I want to take. If I think I should hedge a position more because it's expanded, uh, it's gotten bigger in cash size, I'll start using that allocation to ensure that I can continue to keep those gains. And if it reverses, maybe I can play it both ways because I buy time on my options. So it gives me time to move on both cycles of the market. But that's the biggest thing. I mean, the truth is, you want to be able to keep your portfolio as high as you can at all times. And like, shout out to High Yield 6 for telling me that. Like, that seems so simple, but it really isn't. And if you ask yourself that question all the time when you're deciding whether to buy or sell something, you'll probably make the right decision for yourself every time. Because if you keep your portfolio at the level that you want to take those photos, you're going to be taking better photos in the, in the future, right? That's going to be the situation you'll get into. Um, mm-hmm. So long-term gains are the best, right? Like, that's what I like to allocate to the core all the time. I just keep adding to that. And the way that it grows and the way that it moves over time, you'll pay long-term gains on that. Then when the risky part of your portfolio explodes, you allocate that risky parts gains to your core, get long-term capital gains tax on that part of it, and keep just moving the mountain higher and higher. And then whenever the mountain has an avalanche, you're at a way higher base. And that is how Tony trades. Tony's up on Mount Everest right now. But uh you haven't always been, right? And, and everyone has bad weeks. Uh, I certainly have. And I think Smarter Trader was the one that taught me this too, is if you, you know, let's say you make a hundred grand in a month, hypothetically, right? And you lose 20 grand the last two days. Do you go home and think you lost 20 grand the last two days? Or is it a mind shift to saying, wait a second, let's zoom out. You're up 80 grand, right? And so in thinking about that, you know, a lot of our audience probably had some of that FOMO. They may have gone back into the GMEs, the AMCs of the world. Let's say they got screwed, caught holding the bag there. You know, if they had a really bad week, like what do you tell the pounders, you know, mentally how to get back on their horse and and keep riding into the success sunset? 
Okay, so there's two parts to this answer. First part is, uh, yeah, it's good stuff, Avi. First part to this answer is do it right the first time, right? Allocate yourself properly to your own risks. Don't lie to yourself the first time. If you already lie to yourself and you've done did it, don't fall in the tilt, right? Stay the course, read the Bible, make a spreadsheet, realize you are where you are. You're not up, you're not down. Do what you want to do now for the best situation your portfolio can get into, right? People trade differently when they psychologically think they're down 50% and people trade differently when they psychologically think they're up 50%. That's how humans are. And if you start with a good base and you built it right and you built it bigger and bigger, you're always going to be able to claw back and be fine. You'll get back to the peak. Mathematically, that is the way to do it, right? So don't go in a tilt, stop yourself, walk away if you have to, live to trade another day, but don't take risks you can't afford. And I think that was the biggest thing we've been trading together kind of for a year. And whenever I made any gains in an options play, I didn't throw that right back in an options play. I'd, I'd take those profits and then go buy stock, sit, let my mind like clear for a little bit, uh, and then reassess before I made my next options play. And I, I saw my account grind and start to raise that floor as we always talk about. So 100% agree with you there. But I think a lot of Pound Nation comes to Pound on the Table because they want to hear what stocks we are, in fact, pounding. So let's jump right into some of those. Uh, the first one, of course, we're going to talk about is a SPAC. Uh, this SPAC is ticker symbol HEC. So let's talk about Talkspace. There's my corny line. It's still up the uh, and with an SPAC, of course, guys, we always talk about their management team up front. So they got Doug Bergeron, who's the managing partner of HEC. He spent 12 years as the CEO of Verifone. So obviously, massive company there. He grew that from $50 million to over $5 billion. Their president and CEO is Mark Korshern, who came from Teladoc. Chief medical officer came from Optum. And SVP of networking quality came from United Healthcare. So perfect team for what this company actually does. So what does Talkspace actually do? They address this huge unmet need with enormous total addressable market that's continuing to drive growth. If you think about where they're happening is within mental health. So about 52 million people reported experiencing mental illnesses in 2019. And that's according to the National Alliance of Mental Illness. That's one in five Americans, Tony, 20%. So fewer of those people are actually going out to receive care. So I think times are changing, though, Tony. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I think we were talking about this on the I know we were talking about this on the podcast that COVID is going to have a big impact on mental health, right? People staying inside naturally, just it's creating a lot of different issues with people, right? And the data supports this. So there's a 31% increase in depression, 26% stress related disorder increase, and 13% illicit drug use increase. So there's a lot of things happening that are caused, I don't know, you know, by or with COVID, that whole thing. But it's definitely an impact. It's definitely happening. And people are becoming more and more proactive and more and more accepting of the issue, right? So I think that this is more of like a societal change, especially in the United States and the West in general, to accept mental health, right? Like I know Europe has a very tough time properly accepting mental health and how to deal with it in the country. And like also that goes in, I mean, I'm French, I know this. So like the US is becoming much, much better about it as well. And they're continuing to expand on that. So in 2020, one out of six Americans entered therapy for the first time, right? Like you're seeing this trend change into the right direction for people who need help to get help or people who don't need help yet, but might have a way to get that. Tony, and it is getting better, but 
it's still not quite there, right? 47% of people still say that therapy shows a sign of weakness or they think that, right? 30% of people don't think that their problems are even big enough for therapy. So there's a lot more education. You see it on TV. A lot of more, you know, people are starting to go. I've heard more and more of my friends going. I've gone myself. I think it's super helpful just from a whatever standpoint, whether it's business, relationships, we've been caved up for months and months. People are going crazy. So go get help if you, uh, you think you need it. Right. Yeah. I, mean, at- I liked, I like the advocation hundred <laughs> percent, you know, and yeah. Okay. I was going to just jump in and go numbers. I realize I'm starting to sound like Gandhi, like everyone get their mental health, everyone be Zen, like, uh, like Zen options. I know you're a big revenue guy. So talk some of the numbers. Yeah, I got to see the numbers, right? The numbers don't lie. People do. Analysts don't know what they're talking about. And the whole industry is that way. So the thing that I know is that this thing's got an EV to revenue of 11.2 versus like Teladoc at over 20, Amwell at over 25. So this is like not an overvalued telehealth play at all. And, And for me, when you have a ton of companies and if they're all crushing it very similarly, those multiples will come to a similar mean, right? Like you'll see like, right? TDOC's around 20, Amwell's around 20. So this one should be at least around 20. And if they're growing faster with better margins, right, then it should be 30, it should be 40. Like that is the way that this market is, right? So the better the company does on revenue growth, the better the company does on profit margins, the better the company does on like customer love acquisitions, obviously glass store, the cooler, the tickle symbol, like all of that factors into the multiple at the end of the day. So like we were saying earlier, of course, behavioral health has a huge TAM that hasn't even been tapped into, right? So this is like similar to me, the way I think about like Nanox, right? I love Nanox because there are so many parts of the market it's going to be able to get into because of the type of tech it is. And this is also doing that similarly because it makes it a lot easier for people to actually get health when they're talking over a screen versus in person. So this is all going in the right direction and the numbers show. 2021 net revenue, 125 mil. So that's 69% year over year growth, 64% gross margin, 60% CAGR on net revenue. 78% CAGR on gross margins. And they have a ton of members, right? They're at 46,000 active members. And then 80% of those members return for a second visit, right? So this is very cool. Like people are actually using this service and they have over 2 million people who have been served to date. What I like about Talkspace, they're B2B and B2C. So you or I could jump on the app and talk to a therapist if we wanted to right now. But of course, they're also working with businesses, right? So Businesses like Aetna, Humana, Cigna, Optum, going direct to employers. So some of the bigger ones, of course, are the first adopters. But looking at companies like Google, Accenture, Blackstone, those are massive companies. And I'm sure more and more are going to be coming on board. And it works, right? So 68% of the patients have either been improved or remitted altogether. They got the celebrity factor. They got Michael Phelps, Demi Lovato, two of which, you know, had, they had very big public mental health issues that they are looking to solve, right? And so they're making it normal and okay that, you know, even the stars have to go get mental health, right? And of course, the biggest obvious indicator of all, the <laughs> symbol is going to be talk. I love that, of course. The so, indicator. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's valued way under, and especially now as a SPAC, it's very close to the NAV. And at 1.4 billion, it's only 11 times the multiples. So I'm pounding the table on HEC, Tony, overall, is this a double pound from you? Yeah, I mean, this one's looking really nice on a valuation standpoint. And this trend's ripping. So, yeah, it's going to get a pound for me. All right, we got a double pound. So another stock we did want to talk about, you know, was a fan favorite you found out very quickly on Twitter was the Swedes, which reminds me really quickly to sing a song. And it goes like this. Sweden, Sweden, the sweetest 
song in a brother. And the reason I did that is because last time when I sang the Georgia song, we became number one in business <laughs> podcast in Georgia. So that was just a little self uh, pride here. We're trying to get to be number one in Sweden. So pump those retweets, Sweden. But Tony, <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about the gravy train. Right. So, I mean, here's a, a stock that I've been watching. It's been on my list for a while. And I've like played it a few times before. And then I really took some time to dig into it. And I found out that when you post gravy, G-R-V-Y, the ticker symbol on Twitter, it, it becomes a sweet party. And I love it. It's like the most amazing thing ever. You see like people from another country just know so much about a stock and love it. And they just are all pounding the table on it. And it's actually one of the coolest things I've ever seen on Fintwit. And so, yeah, I do hope that we go number one in Sweden. But the name of the company is Gravity, ticker symbol G-R-V-Y. Um, I know the Swedes love it. It's actually a South Korean-based game developer. So very interesting there. But the company does have the exclusive license for the IP of Ragnarok. So it's a popular Korean comic inspired by Nordic mythology, which makes sense and why it's so popular in Sweden. And uh, Gravity trades at a pretty good discount to the gaming peers in 2020. I know everyone's raging about skills and everyone's raging about Unity. And there's sometimes names that get overlooked because they're such a weird niche and like maybe they focus on one or two games and it's not as like highly sought after as like the platform or the thing that can go 20, 30 X. But if you have nice growth and a turnaround story that works in a cool industry that's exploding and you've got an attractive valuation, that's something I'm looking to pound the table on. This is definitely one of those turnaround stories and I know you got one coming for us soon, um, but it's actually turned around and done very, very well. So the game popularity for Ragnarok peaked and had to, and they had to innovate and the stock fell so low that they had to do a one to eight reverse split. So I'm sure that took a lot of people off of this one because they just hated what happened. Um, but this company is far from done. They have two new hit mobile games that will continue top line momentum through at least 2022. Origin Next Generation. And that one is still number one in Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong and number two in Macaw after a month. So that's pretty awesome. And I want to give a shout out to at Zippy Trades and at Mads C007. I mean, they have such great information on stocks and like really, really helping with doing research on gravity. And that's what I love about FinTwit. Like really, really smart people do great work. And it's and then you can share it with everyone. So what's really cool about gravity is that they can outsource that Ragnarok IP to mobile game development partners in exchange for the rights to the Chinese market. So that's not that much of a cost for Gravity, but it has a lot of potential on the upside if the games are developed by that third party and they're successful, of course. So it's very cool. It's like you're casting a lot of nets and, you know, you can probably catch a lot of fish that way. Um, and then they entered into this agreement with DreamSquare. So that's a Chinese firm. And that was in 2015. And under that agreement, they could also develop and launch mobile games in China based on that IP online. So then Gravity would have the rights to these newly developed games that are outside of China. So that expires this year. But it's still very cool that they're looking to innovate and they're actually pretty well valued. It's not a crazy valuation. Like I think Unity is very, very insane valuation. And I like the fact that this game, you know, they're allowing things to upgrade at the right times now. And they're focusing on that mobile market, which we've already talked about on the podcast so many times is massive, right? That's why we love skills so much because mobile is the fastest growing sector for that and for games as well. And I mean, this thing has hyped, right? It was critically acclaimed as a successful mobile application of the original Ragnarok online game, right? And that's the number one grossing app in many of its end markets, right? That new eternal love that now makes up a ton of their revenue. So that's really cool that that's one of the ones that they recently dropped. So they're planning on dropping different variations of the games. And that's why they're licensing out and they're trying to get cuts of all that 
to produce new revenue streams. And that's how a company grows and innovates out of the depths it was in. All right. So as we all know, my number one indicator, the ticker symbol is the number one thing I take a look at, right? So they passed the smell test there. Gravy is yep. really cool to say. Uh, now, in all seriousness, what I thought was really cool too is beyond the games, they did these like live orchestra events. I know you mentioned in Shanghai, Bangkok, Jakarta, the tickets sold out in two minutes. So this has got like that Pokemon hype, the kind of the SE big, you know, NBA right. game type attendees that are coming to this. And so 7,000 fans attended the concerts, paid for tickets ranging from $28 to $140 US. So that's crazy, but that's the market. And so you got to follow that. And these guys are open to partnerships, right? So in March of 2020, Free Fire, which is SE's baby that we always talk about, they partnered up and did a collaboration with Ragnarok Online. So that's awesome. You mentioned skills earlier. Potentially, that's a partnership down the road. But let me do your job here quickly going into the financials. The growth oh. rate was so strong. 236% operating income growth year over year. That's massive, right? They got negative debt to equity ratio and cash rich. That's another thing you always want to see. And then the market cap's still low. It's $1.2 billion. So there's a massive amount of groups to grow. We always talk about the opportunity cost. I think this one right here is, uh, I'll give that one a double pound for my end, Tony. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I like the way it moves too. It reminds me of like how Mealy moves. It's like there, you don't really have options on it, so it'll move much more aggressively. But I think, you know, as the company continues to partner and reinvent games year over year, because, you know, games have a lifetime of hype. So if they continue to make these new games with all this licensing and all these like IP deals that they're doing to get those revenue cuts, I mean, I could see this game. I mean, it's already showing you that it's doing this great turnaround story, and I could see it really thriving in the future, especially with the focus and hype in the esports and e game market. And so, Avi, this now brings us to a time I've been trying to leave off the podcast as long as I can. But due to recent events in the last week, we are allowed now to talk about this company in an interesting light because it's not only you know, trash, you're telling me that it's a diamond in the rough. It's a gem it in is. the dumpster. It okay, is. Avi, you got All five right. or 10 minutes max. And if you don't convince <laughs> me by this, we will never speak of this name on the podcast again. And I'm dead oh, serious. Can't wait to bring this up. Show me what now. you've learned. Three years, baby. So Blackberry, finally, I've been trying to talk about this literally for months, right? So as you mentioned, one man's trash is another man's treasure, my friends. So I want to caveat this pick as this is something that I've been pounding for months. So before all this hoopla, this craziness, I support the revolution. I love this democratization of finance. I do not support BlackBerry being lumped in with the AMC and GameStops of the world. Oh so I do want to share why I'm pounding <laughs> BB for real here. And it's not just riding this Wall Street pumps. So prior to the recent pump, it had not moved for quite some time. And I want to say this up front because, again, this is a two to three year play for me long term. So in light of all of what just happened this past week, of course, I'm not going to be surprised if there is a little retracement. Before I dive in, I do need to give a massive, massive, massive shout out to Greg Scott. So at Zen Options on Twitter, he was pounding this in my DMs for months way before I even bought it at 483 back in September. So huge credit goes to Greg. He gave me a lot of my original due diligence. Of course, I dove in as I always do. And we'll suggest you guys all do the same as too always. Much. But you dove in too much because I've been hearing about it for weeks. <laughs> and now I bought 10 shares just so I could say I'm in it every time you say something. Well, the reason why, Tony, is this is a company you probably have not even heard of. But back in my day... <laughs> I sound like a grandpa. Uh, now, everyone seriously had this BlackBerry phone. It was 
the phone I got in trouble a lot with in college because someone would text you, you hit that read receipt. And then uh, my girlfriend at the time usually would get very upset with me uh, that I did not respond. But hey, you know, we all reinvent ourselves, right? And so this is exactly what BlackBerry's done. And it's really, really, really impressive. And this is just the start. So they were previously a hardware company, obviously, you know, for their phones and security. This is no longer, right? Amazon started off as a bookstore. That's no more. Companies can pivot. And is BlackBerry Amazon? No. However, they are partnering with them, right? So currently the stock price sits around $13. It got up to $25, obviously came back down. I'm going to be buying more next week. And really, this is, again, just the start of the story, right? So taking a look back in 2008, the stock price was $140 a share. Recent years, of course, the company got rocked, hovered around $4 for a while, Taking a look at like 2014, for example, the revenue was $6.8 billion, And that's when it really started to decline. They had gross margins of 36%, EBITDA of about $194 million. Fast forward to 2020, not that exciting numbers, to be honest. The revenue sits at $1.1 billion. Gross margins, though, 76%. So massive upswing in margins right there. Tony, I know you're thinking, yeah, those numbers suck, Avi. So what's the big deal? I can't not pound the table hard enough that BlackBerry is no longer a hardware company. So all of those revenues are primarily coming from hardware right now. They're going to be blowing into a full-blown cybersecurity. And especially what I'm excited about is Ivy, which I'll get into in just a second. But let's just jump into some of the partnerships that they're doing. In 2020, they got 18 of the G20 governments connected, 175 million vehicles connected, working with 77% of the Fortune 100 financial over 500 million current endpoints connected, which I'll also touch here in just a second. Nine out of the top 10 companies uh, for cars and automotive. And BlackBerry selected, we always talk about the EV market, by 19 of the top 25 EVs. So beyond that, we mentioned some of the governments, but they're also working with hundreds of universities, as well as some other companies such as AWS, as I just mentioned, in a massive scale. Microsoft, NVIDIA, Google, Qualcomm, IBM, Cars even like Xping in China, GM, Audi, Jaguar, Honda, the list goes on, right? But what I'm super excited about, and I just kind of alluded to that earlier, in late 2020, AWS announced this multi-year global partnership with BlackBerry QNX. So this is going to become this worldwide leader in intelligence, software, and security services. Obviously, everyone knows about AWS, absolutely massive. And if you think about how well the EV space has been flourishing, Biden just talked about going on record, pushing all these EVs out. More vehicles are becoming autonomous. This partnership is going to be split 50-50 in terms of share with AWS and BlackBerry. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they just acquire BlackBerry down the road. But the purpose of BlackBerry Ivy is going to be helping automakers and automotive suppliers create the personalized driver and passenger experiences, improve the operations of cloud-connected vehicles, right? And so if you think about BlackBerry Ivy is actually going to start to support more rapid development with new customers' experiences, unlocking new revenue streams. Like, think about it, right? If you're going to have more autonomous vehicles, cars are going to start to have more screens and become more connected. Perhaps our favorite Roku could be sending ads directly to your car that are focused on you, right? BlackBerry Ivy is going to be leveraging all of this vehicle data to recognize the behavior, hazardous conditions, heavy traffic, recommending that drivers enable vehicle safety features such as traction control or lane keeping assistance, right? Ivy is going to also then provide those automakers with the feedback and how those safety features are used, which is going to help those automakers actually get even better with, you know, how they acquire and how they focus on the vehicle performance. 
their CEO, John Chen, quoted on their Q3 earnings, with BlackBerry Ivy, we're creating this recurring revenue model that is targeting revenue on usage as well as subscription-based modeling. I'm a software guy. That is why they get such multiples on the revenue, right? However, Ivy's not going to be around till 2023 when it actually starts to pop into the auto models. But of course, as we all know, markets are forward thinking. So I don't think it's going to be till 2023 before this thing starts to skyrocket. All right, Tony, I'm going to actually have you read this one because I want you to realize what BlackBerry is all about. You said you didn't even know what Ivy was. So I'm going to be pounding the table for you. I know you're just talking about how Baidu has these EVs and clearly the markets responded. So maybe if you want to read this next line talking about yeah. partnership with Baidu. I get it. Yeah, BlackBerry and Baidu are partnering, which is why I can start. I'm giving this at least a two ounces of a pound. A pound. I'll give it a two ounce <laughs> tap right now. All I right. mean, this is starting to warm me up. I need to hear more, though. But it is interesting that you're saying that IV is not just going to be used for cars, though, because IoT is getting bigger and bigger. The 5G, like, you know, everything in the Bible, all those new products are being added to the Internet every second. So that acquisition of silence you've been talking about, the Amazon partnership, already getting into Alexa's, you know, there's Duke's cars are coming out. And, and you're telling me that Amazon might just probably buy them at some point. OK, so now that I've read all that, I'll give it four ounces. So quarter okay. pound the quarter pounder there there's some branding yeah. in the mix here tony you are a hundred percent right on the iot beyond just cars with the partnership with the chinese largest manufacturer which has a partnership with neo if you look at the stats too covid just accelerated that like crazy there was a 300 percent increase in cyber attacks 97 percent of those attacks happened through endpoint we had crowdstrike yeah. run from 60 dollars, you know all the way up to 200 and if you compare those two real quick, if you want to do that spade as a spade based off revenue, CrowdStrike's roughly around a billion right now. Their market cap's right under 50. BlackBerry revenue is about a billion. Market cap's right under 8 billion. And the final cherry on top here, Tony, the BlackBerry CEO, John Chen, is going to get a $90 million check if BlackBerry trades at $30 or above for 10 consecutive days. So that has to have some incentive for John Chen to really speed this up looking in front of investors. So again, I'm pounding this over the next two to three years. Price target around 50, upside towards 70 for myself. And I know BlackBerry is going to be on a bit of a roller coaster ride over the coming months as this whole Robin Hood fiasco kind of unwinds. But if you're partnering with AWS, 50-50 on resources, they have all those incredible partnerships lined up. This BlackBerry name still screams, I'm going along for the ride of this roller coaster. Huge pound for me. BlackBerry, oh, wow. there it is, baby. I know you've been waiting to do this for weeks and weeks, honestly, months at this point. But you know what, Avi? <laughs> you made a strong case, right? You brought up very strategic partnerships that you can't ignore with Amazon and, of course, other people that you mentioned, Baidu, right? And they're in the spaces that you want to be in, right? The IoT, the EV, cybersecurity. Okay, I get it. I get it. And I'm and, and, and this is what I'll say. If you're going to play something that's Wall Street Betty, that will benefit from being Wall Street Betty and also probably have the potential to do something great and be a turnaround story, then I would say, yeah, I'll half pound, eight ounce Blackberry with you. We're going at eight. Greg, I got him to a half a pound. That's all we can ask. Maybe you can get that second half pound for him. You just mentioned gaming, Tony, right? This is something we always love to talk about. We just mentioned skills. We've touched on DraftKings, of course, in the past, but Another major sector that we pounded this massively in the Bible, of course, is genomics, right? And this is the next stock. We teased this out a little bit on Twitter, but the next stock, folks, for everyone that had those guesses, this stock actually rhymes with our theme song. 
cream. Cash rules everything <laughs> around me. So what stock rhymes with cream, Tony? Yeah, so beam, Avi. Beam, 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 beam. That is how I feel about beam. So here's the thing. This sector is the sector, in my opinion, right? You want to talk about moonshot, change the world, do something that we didn't even think was possible, rattlesnakes, 4D, all of it. I love genomics. I am the poster boy, fanboy of genomics and what the potential is because I have no idea. It's the, it's so interesting. It's like space, right? But like space is barely like traded. I have all the names I can in space, but genomics is that for me that is going to affect not just what we do, but how we are as like a physical component when we do it and if we can't even do it. So you know how I feel, F evaluation, whatever. Like I feel the way I feel about these names. And for me, it's so like, how much are you going to change the world? So here's the thing. And this is why I'm actually like obsessed with Beam right now. A lot of the things that we like in the market that we find interesting that have great, you know, backings as a company are things that are changing the game, right? And they're even sometimes leapfrogging over the game and starting game two with everything and more than game one had. So that's similar to like DM, Additive Manufacturing 2.0. That's similar to Cloudflare and Fastly when we were pounding that. That is Edge Cloud. We're going from VHS straight to Netflix, right? We're skipping steps in between, no Blu-ray, no DVD, VCR, all that. Like we're just, we're going straight to Netflix and just streaming in the most intelligent way that we have right now. And so this is what I like about companies like that. They're so innovative that they're innovating on what's being innovated already. They're literally like derivatives. They're 4D, right? So that's the cool part. And for me, Beam is one of those things in the genomic sector that I have to give a huge shout out to for at the missing links because he is a monster, man. Like he told me, look at Beam. This thing is possibly going to put CRISPR, like make it obsolete. And I was like, at first I was like, like how, right? Like how is that even a possibility? Like this thing is like, I've been pounding CRISPR to, to the moon since it started moving. And then I looked into Beam and I was like, holy crap, two seconds. He was right. So here's the thing about Beam. They have this explicit goal of being the pencil for gene editing instead of the scissors, right? So Beam is trying to erase and rewrite one letter of the genome at a time. And this has huge market uses for so many different cases like gene suppression, mutation reversal. And I was watching these videos on YouTube because for companies like this, you need to hear it from the people who are talking about it. You want to hear where their vision's at, what they're deciding to do in the future, and like really where this is going because it's so new, so fresh. You want to hear it from the horse's mouth. A lot of horse analogies this episode, Avi. But anyway, so here's the thing. I, I like got tripped up by the horse. Thing. I'm excited now. And now you're I'm excited. equestrian now. <laughs> yeah. So it's essentially two parts. So they're using the best part of the CRISPR technology that's allowing you to land on the piece of DNA very precisely. But next to it, they can add a protein to next to that DNA. And it almost acts like an eraser that deletes the mutated gene and actually changes it into the right one, right? So this allows to have smaller alterations, different changes that even at the small level cause such important diseases that are really, really bad for mankind, obviously. So the reason why this one can stand apart is because of that. Like, so the other ones use a nucleus approach. So they go and they do the editing and they do double strand breaking of their DNA versus this one goes in and does not try to break the DNA. It literally just edits it which is really what it is, right? Like it's supposed to be editing, not complete like augmentation alteration. So if it's going to be something, it will eventually become this because this is much more precise and actually does a better job. So they can edit that mutated base pair into its proper form. And there's no risk of overexpressing because if they deliver the base editing to the wild cell without issues, 
nothing happens. It's only if it's a mutated form of the protein. And other technologies just aren't able to consider doing this at this point, right? Like we love Editas and CRISPR and NTLA, and I know they will continue to innovate and do great things. But this one for me is like an absolute wild card, right? It's like you're skipping Moore's Law. A few things to watch this week. We have big earnings coming up. We got Fat Tuesday with Baba before the bell. Amazon, Google, Chipotle after. Wednesday, we got PayPal and Spotify. Thursday, we got Pinterest, Peloton, Unity, and Activision, which could be big for skills. Mentioned that a few times on the episode. I think that one I was asking looks like it's going to be somewhere in the middle of February for their earnings call as well. But the biggest thing I'm watching this week, our Wall Street bet pick of the week, something in silver. I've been hearing all over. Silver is about to fly. So is there a specific ticker that if you want to yellow and join the Wall Street bettors that you'd run to? Yeah, if you're going to pick something, I mean, I like SLV. It's actually like not one of those like little random hype stocks. And, and it's going to be a lot harder to halt that thing and and do any type of screw aroundery on it. So yeah. All right, Pounders, we are reaching the end here. We are exhausted from doing the Bible. So if you guys have not gotten that, check out our website. We have a link to download that direct. Tony, as always, send the people off with something to look forward to for the week ahead. Yeah, man, just make yourself your own best investment. That's all I can ask. And it's all you can ask of yourself. So we'll see you next week, Pounders. Have a great week in the markets. Holy shit, that's a pound. Pounding the table. These guys are the best in the business. I've never seen anyone pound the table as hard as me, but holy shit, these guys are good. They really are. America, it's time we all pound as one. My new slogan will be MAPA. That's right, folks. Make America pound again. Drip on a honey, you say less, that's me. Y'all on level one, I'm level three. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves.